to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12. If you are visiting with us this morning, it is our common practice to preach through books of the Bible expositionally, and so we are making our way through this book of 1 Corinthians, and we are now in chapter 12. This morning, we will be concentrating on verses 4 through 11. The title of the sermon this morning is, The Purposes of Spiritual Gifts. And for you worshipers in training, the key words for you this morning are spirit, gifts, and variety. I want to read again the the text before I open up, and I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'll read down to verse 11. So follow along with with me, if you will, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. (laughs) Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. (laughs) Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 3 of this chapter. And as we've seen, Paul is beginning... Uh, to take up one of these questions that have been uh, put forth to him by this church. As he started back in chapter 7 where he says, Now concerning things about which you wrote. And then he's uh, progressing through, through the second half of this book, to take up some of these questions that this church has put forward. And as I said last week, uh, it wasn't that this church just needed instruction. Paul had diligently instructed this church when he planted it some, a few years earlier. And so what they need now not only is further reintroduction of the instruction that he had already given them, but mainly correction. They needed correction because there was some great confusion about this issue of spiritual gifts. And this church had a, had a history of being confused and, and misunderstanding uh, the things of God. And, and, and from that, great division had cropped up in this church and there was uh, great schisms and problems that had come up in this church. And so Paul, as the faithful pastor who had planted them some years earlier, is writing to them to help correct these issues. And now he's taking up an issue of spiritual gifts in chapters 12 through 14. And as we looked last week in in verse 1, Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts, and we saw that that was the Greek word pneumatikon, and that Actually, the word gifts is actually introduced into the into this this uh, verse here. It's really now concerning spirituals is what Paul is talking about. And so from that, we've seen that Paul's main focus, his introduction to this whole section in chapters 12 through 14 is talking about what does it mean to be spiritual? 
What does it mean to be a spiritual person? And so Paul is laying out here in these first three verses, taking up that question. And he he brings up their past in verse 2 to talk about how they had been led astray when they were pagans, when they were unbelievers, to mute idols, idols who were not real, but there behind them was the activity of demonic demons who were, who were involved in this demonic worship and were leading people astray. And so these people, were, there was no stranger for them to be involved in religious worship. They had been involved in this for many years, even before they were converted. But, but it was not a true spiritual worship. It was demonic. And so Paul is saying, it's, not, it's nothing new. It's nothing really different here when you see something supernatural happen. It could be from the Spirit of God or it, couldn't, it may not. And so he lays that out there in verse 3 to really put the, the, the main test that he laid out for them to distinguish between what it is that is from the Holy Spirit and what it is not. And he's saying there that the, the person who is speaking in the name of Christ, uh, speaking in the name of the Spirit about Christ, will not say that Jesus is accursed. And we talked about that last week, that it's not just necessarily that somebody won't say those words. It's that will you, I, the things that you say, do they line up with the biblical Jesus? And many people in the church today are saying things in the name of the Holy Spirit that do not line up with the biblical Spirit. And so Paul lays out for them this, this, this very clear contrast that a person that is speaking in the Spirit Will folk will have a right view of Christ, a right Christology, and a person who is not will not will veer away from that. And so he introduces this section to us by laying out this this contrast between real and false. And so now he's going to take up the issue itself and look at spiritual gifts in the sense of the correct way and what God does provide for the church. And that's what he's looking at in verses four through eleven. And so the first thing we're going to look at. This morning, we're going to, it kind of breaks down in verses 4 through 6, then we're going to look at verses 8 through 10, and then I'm going to look at verses 7 11 at the end. And so the first thing we see there happening in verses 4 through 6 is unity amongst diversity. Unity and diversity. Look again at verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. What is that word varieties? What is he talking about here? The term varieties is in the plural, as you notice, and it is, it is to reveal the comprehensive spread of God's grace to His people. It suggests that these gifts were different in function and widely distributed amongst the Christian community so that every believer has some gift or gifts, but never all of them. First Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. There it is again, God's varied grace, as Paul is talking about here. So what do these words mean? He's got three different terms here, gifts, services, service, and activities. So let's take them up one by one. Verse 4, gifts. It's the word gifts which which is translated from the Greek word charisma. Hence, this is where we get our term charismatic. The root word charis means grace, and that's where this word actually comes from. So now if pneumaticon, which I talked about in verse 1, tells us that spiritual gifts are things characterized by the Holy Spirit, charisma teaches us that they are, that they are gifts of God's grace. They're given by God by His, by His grace and through His grace. They are not something we earn or that we deserve. We do not earn them and we do not deserve them. They are gifts of grace. 
Regardless of what the term charismatic has come to mean and imply today, there really is no such thing as a non-charismatic gift. All gifts are charismatic. That is, all gifts are freely given by a gracious God. So with this truth recognized, a basic principle begins to emerge. We naturally tend to think that a very gifted man must be a very godly man. A pastor, for example, who is especially gifted in several areas such as preaching or teaching, leadership or counseling, is almost instinctively assumed to be spiritually mature and further advanced in holiness than the ordinary believer. What else could we explain the great giftedness we often think? But the simple fact of the matter is that he may or may not be as spiritually mature as we think. His giftedness really has nothing to do with the question, for gifts are not given in proportion to holiness or anything else. Gifts are freely given and sovereignly bestowed by God to whomever He wills. They are gifts of grace. They are not merited. And so are not always indicative of a person's sanctification. They prove nothing but that God gives gifts freely. Spiritual gifts are charismatic. They are gifts of grace, sovereignly given by Him. This word service in verse 5 is the term in the Greek is diakono. We've heard that word before, the same word from which we get the word deacon, which means servant. The next fact that spiritual gifts then is that they are services to be formed, performed. Their primary function is for others. That is key. Their primary function is for others. Gifts are for serving. This word actually means services that are performed within the context of a church. So the spiritual gift is the God-given ability given by His grace, and the service is the sphere in which our divine enablement is exercised. To give you a few examples, John MacArthur, as we no doubt understand, is a great teacher. He's been given the gift of teaching, and he uses that uh, in, a, in, a, in a tremendous way in the church. A lot of people are benefited from his teaching gift. Billy Graham is, is, is widely known as an evangelist. He, he, he has devoted his life to, a, to spreading the gospel of Christ. Truett Cathy, the CEO of, of um, Crispy, uh, Chick-fil-A, excuse me, Chick-fil-A, has, has given millions of his money to the church. Because he, he's been given this gift of giving. And so that's the sphere that they use these gifts in. But there are other teachers in the church. We have teachers in this church. Every church has teachers and people who are preaching. There are other people who do evangelism. They, they do not draw thousands and thousands and thousands of people into a coliseum or into a place to, to spread the gospel. They simply might go out into the street. Or they might do it one-on-one with a person. And there are many people who, who do not have millions like Truett Cathy, but they have been blessed by God and they give over extraordinarily above others. And so there are various different ways in which these gifts are used, and some are greater and some are smaller. But nonetheless, the sphere, the service, the, the place of which these things are taking taken place are in the church, and they are vastly broad. There is a wide diversity of spiritual gifts, and there is even a broader range of ministries through which these gifts are exercised. But in the midst of this diversity, it is the same Lord who orchestrates our lives so that each of us end up exercising our gifts in the context in which He has purposed and provided. 
And so we have the gifts, we have the service, the, the opportunities in which these gifts are utilized in the church. And then we have, in verse 6, the activities, it says. What does that mean? This is the Greek word energoma, from which we get our English word energy. Spiritual gifts are also energizing. It is likely that this word emphasizes the divine energy enabling us to perform this service. Peter has this idea in mind when he says to serve with the strength with which God supplies in 1 Peter 4.11. God gifts us to perform services in His strength. It means action as the result of God's energizing power. Some teachers draw larger crowds and seem to be more effective at communicating the truth, as I just mentioned, than others. Some evangelists see thousands saved in one exposure, others but a handful. There are different levels of effectiveness or success, but these levels have nothing to do with our natural skills or our abilities. They are the result of God's sovereign will who determines how successful we will be. And this success has little or nothing to do with our spiritual spirituality. Jonah was one of the most successful prophets who ever lived. If we judge his success by people doing what he asked. He went to preach to Nineveh and the whole city repented. What a great evangelist he was. But Isaiah, on the other hand, was not very successful in that realm. And so... Would we judge Jonah as a greater prophet than Isaiah? Absolutely not. We know that the life of Jonah, there was something seriously wrong with his heart. But nonetheless, God gave a great effect from his ministry. And he did not sovereignly give a great effect to Isaiah's ministry. But both were doing and being obedient. Isaiah even more so, but Isaiah did not have as much results. And so he might be tempted to say, I'm not being an effective prophet. But nonetheless, he was a very effective prophet because he was doing exactly what God had commanded him to do. And God is the one who provided the result. And he understood that. And so we must understand that it is God that, that is energizing, that is giving us the, the abilities to do what we do. He gives us this grace to perform in his church, to work in his church. And he gives us these opportunities to serve these gifts. And he gives us the results for, to them. And so... From that, we get a definition for spiritual gifts, which is a spiritual gift is a God-given ability to serve the church effectively. Let me say that again. A spiritual gift is a God-given ability to serve the church effectively. As we've said, there is a wide variety of, of gifts that operate in a wide variety of ministry possibilities with a wide range of results. But all of this is under the sovereign control of a unified Godhead. Look again at verses 4 through 6. He says there's varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God. What do we see there? We see the Trinity involved in the giving and the operations and the effectiveness of these gifts that He gives to the church. Don't you love it when you see the doctrine of the Trinity laid out in Scripture as we see the unified God in operation, working in the world and working in His church? And even here in this thing, of, in this issue of spiritual gifts, the Trinity is involved, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so that is where we find our unity. We're not looking for uniformity, we are, we are looking for unity. There is great disagreement in the church today as there was in this church in Corinth in that time about 
what spiritual gifts are, what, what they function, what they are called to do, which ones are more or greater than others. We have that debate going on today. And many in our day are seeking to, to focus on specific gifts as if we want every person to have this one or this gift. And so that goes against what God is showing here because we're not looking for uniformity. If you gather 11 men on a field of, to play football, if every one of them lines up to be quarterback, they will not get a lot done, will they? They will not be very effective in moving the ball down the field. And so we're not looking for uniformity. We want unity in the Spirit, and the Spirit is the one who is controlling this. The common possession of the Spirit does not lead to a common manifestation of the Spirit. That's key. To be sure, there is much that we have in common by the Spirit, specifically the fruits of the Spirit, as Paul lays them out in Galatians 5. But while we are, in this, while we are the same in some ways, we are not at all same in others, and intentionally so, God as Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit blesses His people with different gifts, different kinds of service, and different kinds of effects or results from those service. However, the different gifts are not to serve different agendas, but in fact serve the same agenda, the agenda of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we see there that Paul shows us that we have unity amongst diversity because of, this, because of the Trinity. And so what is the next thing we're going to look at? Look, focus on verse 8. Verses 8 through 10. When Paul says in verse 4 through 6, there are varieties of, or verse 4, there are varieties of gifts. In verse 8, he actually shows us so. For to one, he says, is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. And to another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. So he's laying out there a list of these gifts, these great varieties that God has provided for his church. He lists them here. In fact, there are five places in the New Testament where we see spiritual gifts listed. We see them here in verses 8 through 10. We see them again at the end of chapter 12 in verses 28 through 30. We see them in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. We see them in Ephesians 4.11, and we see them in 1 Peter 4.10 and 11. Now, the consensus among scholars is that there are approximately 20 different gifts. That, as we look at all of these lists, there's 20 different gifts mentioned in these five lists. In fact, it would be correct to say that these gifts that are mentioned should be viewed as broad categories and cannot be easily defined in one way that carries over in every instance of that gift. Some are mentioned in more than one list, and not all are mentioned in each list. That's very important. The key observation from this is that no one list is comprehensive or complete. Even this list here, as we look, is not comprehensive, and it's not meant to be a complete list. So as you read this list, you need to keep in mind that these are representative examples of the kinds of gifts that God gives, but these are not the only gifts that God gives His church. Now, when looking at the gifts mentioned in verses 8 through 10, I don't want to spend a great deal of time this morning trying to explore what they all mean. There are two reasons for this. For starters, Paul does not give us any more than labels here, and so any statements about what these gifts consist of have to be made with a certain amount of uncertainty. 
To be sure, the fact has not, that fact has not stopped thousands of people from producing thousands of books, tapes, sermons, which attempt to define these gifts in mind-boggling detail, but the reality is that there are limits on what we can say for sure about any one of them. And that leads to the second reason why I don't want to say a great deal about them is because I don't think that is the reason Paul has listed them here. Clearly, Paul is not trying to provide the Corinthian church with a manual on spiritual gifts in which he explains what they all are and what they are for. His interest in these chapters is not in doing that, but it is, as we have seen, to address the Corinthians on the subject generally and then to give specific attention to to two gifts in particular, tongues and prophecy, which we will get to later in chapter 14. And so because that is Paul's main concern, it will be my main concern as well. Still, it may be helpful to make a few comments about this list, about these gifts mentioned here, as they will be relevant to our discussions now and later on as we continue through this section. So let's look at them. There's nine of them in this list. The first, he says, there are words of wisdom. What is that? Well, the word, he says it's a word of wisdom. It's an utterance of wisdom. And so it's a it's something to do with communication. It's, a, it's logos. It's, it's, it's an utterance that is given of wisdom. And one thing I need to say that will set this up, and this is going to be fleshed out further as we continue to go through this section, is that the early church was very different than we are today. The early church did not have the completed canon of Scripture. We have everything we need for life and godliness in this book here that we have with us. We can go to it and we have every, get every answer we, we, we have, uh, get every answer to every question that we have can be sought out in this book. God has given us everything that we need. Well, during the early church, that was not so. The, the Bible was being written during this time. The apostles were still on the scene. And so for about 30 or 40 years, these individual books as letters or gospels or whatever were being written by these men. And so in the early years of the church, they did not have the closed canon of Scripture. They had, depending on what time it was, if it was in the, the 50s or the 60s, you would not, have, would not have had many of them at all. And so, and so what is happening here is that this church did not have a Bible to go to. They had the apostles. And so the apostles are receiving revelation from God to proclaim to the church. Many of it was, some of it was written down to be put into the closed canon. But that's what we see here in many of these gifts. That's why it's hard to nail them down and give strict definitions because some of, the, some of them uh, were used in different ways back then. And some of them, as we believe and as we teach here, are no longer in use. And so this word of wisdom that Paul is talking about here is direct wisdom from God on how to apply knowledge to a certain situation. It's tied with the next one very close, this word of knowledge. This is uh, knowledge that's received directly from God, not in the normal way of study. This is, a, this is something that's being revealed to this person so that he understands the things of God and, he has, and, the, and then this other person has the wisdom to know how to apply it to the church. And so all that together is to understand that a lot of these gifts were revelatory in nature. They were, God was revealing His Word to His church in these early days. Some of it was being written down to be canonized forever. But God was leading His church through these gifts, through these men. He says the third gift there is the gift of faith. 
Well, that's not, that's obviously not saving faith because that's not a gift that's given in a variety of ways or sparingly amongst everybody. Everybody has saving faith. You cannot be in the church if you do not have faith. But I believe what God, what he's, Paul is talking about here is that this is the ability to trust God in extreme circumstances and that would have been a gift that was greatly needed during this time. It's greatly needed now, but it was specially needed and during that time because the church was very, very young. It was just getting started and so there was tremendous obstacles to be seen. And again, they did not have the complete closed canon of scripture to run to, to go to for all their answers. And so some, there were people who had this gift of faith who would be the ones who were, I guess we could use the, the phrase, the people who wanted to charge hell with a water pistol. That's that type of person who, were, who was sovereignly gifted by God to, to, to trust Him and to do things in extreme circumstances. He also says there was the gift of healing. Now, I believe that means that someone had the gift to actually heal somebody. We've seen this. Uh, this, was a very, this was a gift that was given very sparingly. We know that, the, that Jesus himself had it. We know that the apostles had it. But towards the end of the, the church age, as we begin to see some of these later letters, you do not see anything mentioned about this gift at all. And in fact, when we get to the book of James, he says at the end of, in chapter 5, if anyone was sick, they were to call on the elders for prayer. They weren't to call on the person with the gift of healing. They were to call on the, the elders. And so we believe that that gift towards the end of this age began to phase out. And even as you read some of the apostles, Paul himself had this gift early on. We have an instance, instance in, in Acts where he healed people. But towards the end, there were, there were some of his compatriots who, Timothy and some of the other ones who were sick, that it doesn't say that he healed them. And so it's, we believe from that and uh, in many other places in Scripture that this gift, again, began to phase out towards the end of the church age. And again, a lot of these gifts were revelatory, but a lot of them also were given to establish these men, these apostles. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, "...the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with signs and wonders and mighty works." And so Paul, that he was, he's defending his office there was showing that he was an apostle because he did these signs and wonders and mighty works. And so that goes along with the next gift that's listed there, the gift of miracles. And I believe that's exactly what it says. These were supernatural uh, events that were, ha- that were happening through these certain people. But what's interesting, and I'll make this, say this note about that, about this, this particular gift, is that if you read the Bible in its entirety, there's really only three historical periods throughout the whole age of the Bible, from Genesis all the way to the end, that we see uh, miraculous activity happening. The first we see is in the, in, the, in the days of Moses and Joshua, through Exodus and Joshua. We see them doing great many miracles to establish Moses and Joshua as the leaders of the, the new covenant community. And then many years passed, and, and, the, and we see a few here and there, but then when you get to the time of Elijah and Elisha, the, the prophets Elijah and Elisha, you see them doing great miracles. And then many years after that, we don't see any more miracles until the time of Jesus. And then, as an extension, on into the early, early, years, early years of the church through the apostles. And so... There was only very three brief periods of time throughout redemptive history that we see miraculous activity taking place. But but nonetheless, during this time, someone had this gift of miracles, and we know that the apostles did. 
And so the next gift we see listed there is the gift of prophecy. And I believe that is exactly what we see in the Old Testament, is revelation from God. It was given to these men to a, uh, because, there, again, there was no revelation to go to. There, it was sparingly. And so they were being given revelations from God to dictate to the church. And then the next we see is the distinguishing of spirits. And this, this ties in with this gift of prophecy. This is the ability to judge or evaluate prophecies, teachings, and or people distinguishing the false from the truth. You know, not anybody could claim to stand up and say, I have a word from God. I'm a prophet from God. It had to align up with what the apostles were teaching. And he could not contradict. And as we've seen in the first three verses, it, it had, to be, had to be right Christologically. And so there were these people who were able to distinguish between false and true spirits. And then we see there at the end of the list, we see the gift of tongues and the interpretation of tongues. And I'm not going to say a lot about that because we're going to spend a great deal of time dealing with these gifts in chapter 14. So as we look at these gifts, we probably should not make too much of the order here except to say that it is likely that Paul places tongues and the interpretation of tongues last, not because they are the least of the gifts, but because the Corinthians are overemphasizing them. That's important. That's the problem they were having. They were overemphasizing this gift, this gift of tongues. And so Paul, instead of puts them at the end of lifts because they were overemphasizing them, and so Paul de-emphasizes them to show that it's not about what gift you have, it's God gives the gifts according to His will. And so we see there in verses 8 through 10 this list, and if you put that together with all the other lists, you see a great variety that God has placed, put out there for His church as far as giftedness. And so that leads us to the, to the main point of the sermon this morning is what is the purpose of these gifts? Why did God give, why does God give these to His church? Let's look at verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Again, the question, who receives these gifts? He says they're to each, each one of you. Each one of you has received a gift. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 1 Peter 4.10, we've already seen this, but he says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's steward of God, as good stewards of God's very grace. So the point is very clear there, that every person in the church God has gifted to serve the church. And so what is the purpose? Why is he given these gifts? He says there, for the common good. Of course, the underlying principle in all that we do is the glory of God. We must exercise our spiritual gifts in order to glorify God aright. And Peter teaches this in 1 Peter 4.11. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Paul had already written this earlier in 1 Corinthians 10.31. He says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But here he becomes more specific. Yes, gifts are for the purpose of glorifying God, but there is still another more immediate purpose. The purpose is the edification of the body of Christ. 
God is glorified when we use our gifts to build up the church. This is implied in verse 5 where Paul describes the gifts as services. In verse 7 here, he says the gifts are given every man, given to every man for the common good. Now this term for the common good in the Greek is interesting. It literally means to lift up together. God gave spiritual gifts so that the members of the body of Christ could by them lift up one another. Together. And so while some may act like it, there really is no gift of criticism. You understand that? There is no gift that God has given called the gift of criticism. Because what does criticism do? It tears down. It does not build up. And so the things that God has given to the church are gifts that build us up. I would invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. This is a parallel text of Scripture that I think will help shed more light on this. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we start in verse 4. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, (coughs) who is over all, and through all, and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ." from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You hear what he's saying? The Trinity, the God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is actively involved in working in His church for the good of His church. We were given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift, he says in verse 8. Why? To build us up. He says in verse 12 there, he's given the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers. And we know that that we see a descending order there in, in time. The apostles were given to found the church and the prophets working alongside with them in the early days of the church to establish the church, because it was founded on the teaching of the apostles and prophets. He gives the apostles, the evangelists, and then the shepherd teachers, the pastor teachers. To do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. 
This is not a one-man exercise. The pastor is not the one who makes a or breaks a church. It is the people. It is those whom God has placed in a local assembly who have, whom He has uniquely gifted that builds a church. The pastors are giving to equip the saints to teach you, to counsel you, to come alongside you and disciple you and for, the, for the effect of building you up, for the effect of, of getting you ready and, and growing you in your understanding of the Word so that you may go out and do and serve others in that manner. Discipleship has that, it has that type of activity. You go one-on-one with somebody and then that person goes one-on-one with maybe two people and then two people and two people or three are here. And then what do you see? Before long, you've got an entire group of people that have been affected by the Word by people actively serving one another and helping to equip one another for building up the body of Christ. And how long do we do this? Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. You know when that's going to happen? When we're all dead. (laughs) When we're all in heaven. When Christ returns to receive His people to Himself. And when we are the church triumphant in heaven, that's when we will no longer need these gifts. But until that time, we need each other. We need to be equipped. We need to be doing the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. He says in verse 15, we're speaking the truth in love to one another. We're growing up in every way who, into Christ who is the head. We're growing. There's no such thing as a stagnant Christian. You're either growing or you're dying. When you get into the river and you just float, what ha- when you just stand still, what happens? You're going, against, you're going with the stream, right? And so you can either do that or you can swim against it. And so you, there is no such thing as sitting still in life. There is no, there's no such thing as a, as a blessed church where people are just there sitting and receiving all the time and never giving. We cannot grow that way. And he says in verse 16, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. Who does the equipping? Who does the fitting? God. God is joining His, His people together. God is building His church. He's the one who provides the, the different parts of the body. He already has the head. Christ is the head. There is no longer a need for a head. He is the eternal head of the church. But the rest of the body is us. And so God is, 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 is taking each individual church and He's building that church into a body. And that's why He uses that imagery of a body because a body with just a head is a gross-looking body, right? It's not functioning properly. And so the church who is being equipped and worked together has arms and hands and legs and feet. And so God is saying here that He makes, He's equipping this body. And when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. See the condition in that? There's a condition there. He says, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This doesn't happen in a vacuum. God doesn't do the work for us. He equips us. He gifts us to do this work. But then He expects us to do the work. He commands us to do it. And when we do do that, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love.
Joseph Hall, Bishop of Exeter, England in the 17th century, illustrates uh, spiritual gifts in this way. He says, As many vapors rising from the sea meet together in one cloud, and that cloud falls down divided into many drops, and those drops run together, making rills of water which meet in channels, and those channels run into brooks, and those brooks into rivers, and those rivers into the sea. So it either is or should be with the gifts and graces of the church. They all come down from God, divided severally as He will to various Christians. They should flow through the channels of their special vocations into the common streams of public use for church or commonwealth, and ultimately returned into the great ocean of His glory from whence they originally came. I think that's a good way to illustrate it. It's like the rain. It comes from the sea and returns from the sea. And so God gives these gifts to His church not to to utilize for our own selfish gain. He gives us these gifts because He wants His church to be built up and functioning properly and to be growing because it has an effect. It has an effect on, on the people as we're doing this work. But it also has an effect on the communities that we're in. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, it, God uses us as His vessels to make that a reality. And so as people are getting out and working in their communities with the ways that God, the varied ways that God has gifted them, then, then God is using that to draw people to Himself. And He is getting all the glory for that, not us. And so the purpose of spiritual gifts is for the common good. It's for our good. It's good that we serve one another. It's for our good. And then he says there in verse 11, he says, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions each one individually as He wills. They're given by the one Spirit. and He apportions each one individually as He wills. Craig Blumberg in his commentary here says, Verse 11 provides a crucial caution against the natural human tendency to want or expect everyone else to be gifted in the ways we are. It completely refutes all claims that any one gift is necessary for someone to be a Christian or to be a mature Christian or to be in the center of God's activity in some part of the world. Just as there are no one-member churches, neither are there any every-member gifts. It's the Spirit who gives the gifts. And He does not give the same gift to every person. As I said, a a team with all quarterbacks would not be a well-functioning team. He gives those gifts for the common good because He wants to see His body grow and function in the way it was called to function. And we need all kinds of different activities and, and services and gifts to do that. Just a side note, I, I didn't say a lot about the gift of tongues, and I'm not going to a lot here. We're going to get into that in a while. But there are those who say that, who would assent that yes, the gift, the gift of tongues is to be used sparingly in the church, but that God gives the gift of tongues as a private prayer language. Well, I will say simply about that is that you cannot get that from this text of Scripture. It completely contradicts what God is saying here about why He gives gifts. It is an oxymoron to say that God has given me a gift to use in private. It cannot be used that way. It is given for the common good. And so whatever you may believe about the gift of tongues, 
It cannot be used in a selfish way as it pertains to any other gift. There was great discord in this church as there are disagreements in the church today about which gifts are greater and should be sought more. But the reason they were doing that is because they were being selfish. They were focused on themselves. They were not focused on serving others. They were not content to be the foot or the arm or the toe or whatever God has provided for them to do in the church. They were not content with that because they were focused on themselves. And so verse 11 lays out very clearly that God gives the gifts and He apportions to each one individually as He wills, not as we will. Nicola Paganini was a world-class Italian violinist, guitarist, and composer in the early 19th century. After his death, he wheeled his famous violin to the city of Genoa, which was the city of his birth. He only gave it to them on one condition, and it was that the instrument never was played upon. It was an unfortunate condition, for the peculiarity of the wood was such that the longer it was not used, the more it rotted. When it wasn't handled, it wore and wore and wore, and as soon as it was discarded after Paganini's death, it began to decay. From that instrument used to come exquisite, mellow-toned violin music, but today, as we speak, it is a worm-eaten and it is useless, lying in its beautiful case, valueless, valueless except as a relic. It is the moldering instrument that is a reminder that a life that is withdrawn from service to others loses its meaning. That, that violin was only useful as long as he used it and strummed it to play great music, to bless people with. But as soon as it was set aside, it, became, it lost its purpose. It was useless and it rotted. And that is what we are like. If, we're, if our life is not invested in serving others, then we are, then our life is going to decay. It is not going to be a well-functioning life. We're not serving God in the way, the manner in which He has called us to serve. And so my question for you this morning is, are you using your gifts for the common good of Ephesus Church? Are you using your gifts for the common good of Ephesus Church? Can we put the mission statement up? This is the mission statement of Ephesus Church. I want to read it. Ephesus Church is a family of faith that exists to worship God with joy, to love our neighbors, to see transformed lives, and to send and be sent for the spread of the gospel through Jesus Christ. It's a very simple one sentence, 37 words that describes why we exist. And so I bring that up in the context of this sermon this morning to say, to show you that there is a limitless amount of opportunity here for you to be involved in the life of your church. Whatever way God has gifted you, there are limitless opportunities here. And there is a lifetime of work to be done here. There is no reason to, to sit around and say, I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't know what my gifts are. There are limitless opportunities and possibilities for you to be involved in the life of your church for the common good of your church. And so the question for you this morning is that are you involved in the common good of your church? 
You know, I'm not a big fan of spiritual gift surveys because I don't really think they accomplish anything because, first of all, as I said earlier, we, it's hard to determine exactly what some of these gifts are these today and, and the very the, the almost limitless ways they could be exercised. And a lot of times they only tell you what you already know. And so uh, I don't think you need to sit around and wait in order to take a survey. The issue is, is your heart burning in you to be involved in the kingdom of God? Because God has set you apart and called you for that purpose. You still, Christian, have breath coming through your nostrils because you are. God is giving you a, a, a call to be involved in His kingdom. And so the question is, are we? Our church will only be effective in evangelism and in reaching in this community as if God is, is if the evangelists who are in here, everybody who has the, the heart for evangelism is acting, go active, actively going out and working in that. Now, all of us are called to be evangelists, but some of us may, are, are, are uniquely gifted in that way, and so we should be leading the way. And one thing about these gifts, we're all called in some way to, to participate in these things. In one way or the other, we're all called to teach. If we're parents, we're called to teach our children. We're called to give. We're called to do all of these things. We're called to show mercy. But there are others, and and, and you know yourself, and you know where God is burning in in your heart. You know what He's calling you to do. You know what He is... Those things that you you just naturally are drawn to, that is a good sign of where God has given you a gift to utilize in His church, and this is where you do it. It's not up there anymore, but that's where you do it. We worship God with joy. We love our neighbors. We, we want to see transformed lives. We want to send and be sent for the spread of the gospel through Jesus Christ. And so there are plenty of opportunities for everyone. There is no, there is no lack of work here to be done. I can't do it all. Pastor Nick and Pastor Russ can't do it all. If you're looking to us to do all these things, I'm telling you, you're going to be, you're going to be very disappointed. And I will go ahead and resign right now because I couldn't bear the weight of it. I couldn't do it. Everybody, There are no spectators in this room. If you're a child of God this morning, you are not a spectator here this morning. You are called to be on the field ready to play the game in whatever way God has gifted you to do it. And so the question is, as we continue to go through this section, is is my heart burning with a desire to be involved in His kingdom, to be the means that He uses to, to advance His kingdom? He does it. He does it all through us. We're just vessels. But He doesn't do it through a vacuum. We must work. And we are here to equip you, to train you, to do whatever we can to help you. Let's get in the game. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace that You give us to function as a church. Father, we know that we fail in so many ways. And maybe it's because of ignorance, but most probably, Lord, it's because of indifference on our part. We have not, we have not been diligent to work in Your kingdom. So, Father, forgive us. Cleanse us. Bless us, Father, to be actively involved in the life of this community as the light that you, have, that you have made us to be in this community, the light that we don't hide under a basket, 
And, Father, I pray for each one of us that our heart would burn with a desire to work and to serve others for the common good and for your name to be glorified in all that we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.